Uh, this is one of the reasons we preach uh, through the scriptures. Uh, I wouldn't have selected these uh, sections. Uh, but that's why we kind of submit our whole selves under the whole word of God, right? Uh, before we get into the text this morning, uh, June 5th is our 10-year celebration. 10 years of God's faithfulness uh, to the Welcome Church and then through us as a body. Just praise God. We're going to have a, a huge party. Uh, it's going to be at the Civic Center, downtown Silver Spring, and uh, we'll have a big feast there as well. So uh, please mark your calendars for 10 a.m. on the 5th. Uh, we would love uh, to celebrate uh, all together. Uh, uh, secondly, and I want us to pray uh, for two things again this morning. Uh, the first is our Kenya trip. Uh, seven of us left uh, this Saturday for a trip to Kenya to support the work that uh, nationals are doing there on the ground to care for the people of Kenya uh, holistically and also to share the good news of the gospel and plant churches. Uh, so we're going to support Gideon Banda and his uh, group there, which is just an amazing ministry. So uh, please pray for this team all this week for the next two weeks. Please pray. Uh, and then the second is, uh, you know, we're in dialogue with a, a really amazing opportunity for a permanent space here in Silver Spring. And please pray for that. So it's still going well. Uh, so pray, God, give us the place you have for us. All right. So uh, let's pray out loud all at once uh, for this trip to Kenya and for the permanent space that God has for us. Might it be uh, this opportunity or we trust him with something else. So let's pray all out loud at once uh, and God will sort out our prayers. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the seven that went to Kenya, and maybe even more importantly, thank you for the men, women, and kids who are just doing an amazing work in Kenya that they'll be joining. Thank you for Gideon and his team, and thank you for uh, the work that they're doing to care for people who are in desperate need physically, and also to bring the good news of the gospel and plant churches. We just give you praise and thanks for that team, and pray you do a mighty work in and through them. God, I pray for uh, the permanent space that you have for us. If it's this opportunity, God, I, I pray that you would just blow the doors open and make it just clear and evident, and you would provide everything needed. And God, if it's something else, I pray that you provide for our hearts and minds that we would again trust you uh, with your goodness and your sovereignty. You are a good, mighty God, and we do trust you. We declare that now and pray that you would help us trust you if this isn't the opportunity for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in the middle of a passage on false teaching, and particularly how false teaching gets itself into the church with devastating effects in and then outside of the church. All right, so that's the passage we are in, and you know, last week we talked about you know what causes that, and some different things lead to false teachings, why they arise. One is just the maliciousness of some folks, right? The passage talks about greed and leveraging a false teaching for selfish gain. Uh, but then I was thinking about it for our church in our area, and, and I don't think that's the motivator here in our area. I think what motivates it for us is uh, kind of two things. One is a, a critique, a, a look back at the church, uh, our church and, and other churches, and, and we say, gosh, we have lived so poorly. 
We have treated people so poorly. We have done such awful things as a church. Uh, We need to change this or that about our teaching. And often we do need to change this or that. Uh, But then sometimes that gets even deeper into the core of the gospel and how it is taught uh, that it's changed or tweaked or altered so much so that it's false. Uh, So motivated by a critique of the church, looking into our church and other churches and saying, gosh, that's got to change. And often it does have to change, but then changing the core of the gospel as well. Uh, Then I think the other thing that motivates us in this area, and particularly in our church, is a love. Gosh, just a deep love for people. I've gotten to sit with many of you leaders in the church and talk through a couple different kind of issues within society right now. And and what a deep love motivates us. And I'm just, I want to say, praise God, right? Keep loving. But in that sometimes, a love for folks who don't yet know Christ and aren't submitting themselves under who Jesus is and his teachings, a love then brings an assimilation of a false doctrine or teaching into the midst of a church in a way to say, I want to love this or that group or this or that person. And in doing so, we then assimilate a teaching into the way that even the core of the message of the gospel can become false. So I don't think it's the main motivation often that Second Peter is talking about that drives us, but I think it's often a healthy critique of the church that sometimes leads to this and often a healthy love for others that often leads to this. So what we'll do this morning is kind of this threefold movement. First, we're going to look at what is the root and result of false teaching. Then I want us to be able to identify what are kind of typical aspects of false teaching. And then I want to resolve some of this conflict of critiquing who we are as a church and loving others and, and say, how do we stay true and pure to the gospel while at the same time love people well, particularly people who disagree with core aspects of our faith? All right, so there's a lot to cover. I'm going to try and speak slowly. I think it will be very worth our time this morning. Uh, But because of that, uh, I'm not going to be able to nuance every truth that we hit out of the scriptures here. And there's a lot to be said that I'm not going to be able to say this morning, so I ask for your grace in that. And also that you and I and all of us would uh, continue to pursue the scriptures in a way that we say, what is true of who you are, God, and how does that impact the way we live, what we teach, what's true of ourselves as a church? All right, so root and result of uh, false teaching, uh, recognizing typical aspects of false teaching, And then how do we love people uh, that disagree with what we believe is true? Okay. So first, uh, the root and result of false teaching. In order to know what is false teaching, we have to know what is true teaching. uh, The gospel, the good news, the core of our faith, right? Uh, Peter says, uh, you know, from the very beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you what? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses. So the first thing he says is the gospel, what is true, is that uh, all we know about who Jesus is and what he's done. They're, they're eyewitnesses coming to say what is true about who Jesus is and what he's done. What is true is that God saves sinners and redeems his creation and world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel in a nugget. God saves us sinners, individuals, Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That uh, his life is a perfect righteousness that we never lived. His death is a substitution for us in our place on the cross for the life that we did live of sin. And then his resurrection is this new power to bring us to newness of life and walk with him in obedience, right? God saves us 
through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then God is also doing this massive plan of restoring his whole creation, his whole world, his whole kingdom of which he reigns over his earth. That Romans 1 says all creation groans, and in this groaning, Jesus comes and reconciles this broken world to God the Father. And God promises Jesus will return and restore all things and make them new. Right? So in one sense, you've got a gospel of 10,000 feet in this uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Then you've got the gospel kind of at ground level with us individual sinners being restored and rescued. And this is all through the scriptures, right? The good news, the core of what we teach here at the well and what is taught in the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians, just a couple of references for you. Like I said, we're not going to be able to cover it all. But 1 Corinthians, you should write these down. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Paul says, man, I didn't come preaching these other things. I preached the gospel. And then he says it just like what we said here on the screen. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the Roman road. Romans 3.23, that we're all sinners, right? Every one of us. And then Romans 6.23, that we have a Savior in Jesus. And then Romans 10.9 and 10, that we place our trust, our faith in him. Right? Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, and then Romans 10.9 and 10. And then you've got all these gospel nuggets throughout all the scriptures. You've got Mark 10.45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life. What is a ransom for many to purchase us back, make us new, give us life? You've got John 1.12, that we can become the children of God by receiving Christ. Or John 3.16, that God is restoring his whole world through his only begotten Son. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that, that Jesus who had no sin was made sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right, That substitution, God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God redeems and restores his whole creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God did what we cannot do. In short, you can't do it. I can't do it. God did. That's the gospel. So what is the false gospel? You can. Here's how. You can. Here's how. You can do it. You can bring about salvation for yourself and others, and here's how to do it. Whether that be legalism and righteousness of our own in a religious kind of way, or or pluralism of saying, I'm my own master, I'll do as I please, and I can bring about goodness in my life and in all of creation. You can do it. Here's how. Like I said, that could be motivated by a malicious way to, to gain from others, or it might be motivated by love or critique of how we've lived or, or a desire to love others. You can do it. Here's how. And just as a reminder, here's some of the roots of false teaching. Uh, the root is found primarily in chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, I said we were in the middle of this passage about false teaching. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Peter. False prophets... Also arose among the people, right? He was saying, we were true prophets, but false prophets have always arisen. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master. Even denying the master. Here's the core, here's the root of false teaching. You are your own master. I am my own master. I call the shots. You call the shots. We call the shots. Not God himself, not Jesus, not what he has done to rescue us. I can do it. Here's how. I don't need you. I don't need the scriptures. I don't need the master. I can blaspheme the message and say, it's not true. It's not right. It's actually evil and bad. 
And then chapter 2, verses 2, all the way through 16, Peter's just going to say, man, that leads to disaster. He gives us all these warnings, right? He kind of hits example after example of warnings to say, don't go that way. Don't go that way. The root of false teaching is we are our own masters. We can deny the true master, Jesus. We can deny what God has done for us in Christ. We can blaspheme him and his message. What are the results? That's the text we just read this morning, verse 17. The results of a false message, a message that takes us away from the the true message of the gospel, that life is found in Jesus Christ and in what he's done by paying for our sin and living a righteous life in our place, and and that he's bringing about this restoration of the world in his return. Uh, to, To wander from that and towards other teaching leads to this, these results, verse 17. False teaching and false teachers are waterless springs. I love the images that Peter uses here. Waterless springs, a mist that's blown by the storm, and someone who promises freedom but themselves are slaves. First, waterless springs. Any other message will uh, get us seeking satisfaction in a different way to find life, but what we'll find is it'll be waterless. It'll never satisfy. It'll never quench the thirst in our souls. It's false. It's not true. It can't do what it's promising. It's waterless. It won't satisfy. Uh, Or it's a a mist that's driven by a storm. It's directionless and confused. There's there's no direction to a life that's led by a false teaching. It it goes this way, and then it goes that way in contradiction and and says, how will I find uh, goodness or or peace or or justice or or a life or any of these things that I'm looking for? It, It runs this way to try and find it, then that way, blown about like a mist in the wind. Confused, not satisfying, and then the last, enslaving. Promising that you'll find freedom if you take control of your life. Do as you please. Don't tell me how to live. I'll choose how to live myself. And in this freedom, we will find slavery because it's never enough. And our sinful rebellion will be running from our uh, benevolent, loving, gracious, merciful master and instead become masters in our own lives and therefore be enslaved. Never finding life. And then Peter gets really gross. It's a really gross analogy. He quotes the Proverbs. And he says, well, here's why. And by the way, he's given a really dire warning. He said, it would have been better had you not uh, even heard the truth and kind of believed it, but then left and run to these false doctrines. It would have been even better if you just never even heard it. Why? Because their hearts have gotten harder and harder. And we see this in Hebrews 6 and all these other places where when you taste a little bit of what's true in the gospel, then run from it to other ideologies and other ways of living it, it further hardens and enslaves us. And Peter's going to say why, and like I said, a really nasty way. Verse 22, he says, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Uh, leaving what is best or better for something that is worst. Why? Uh, like a dog returns to its own vomit. It, it satisfies just enough to lick it up. But it never fully quenches. It's like that great, clear, crystal uh, glass of water you want to chug down. It gives you just enough of that. 
to keep you coming back over and over again. Wallowing in the mire after being washed, it, it gives you just enough cleanliness, but you're covered in your own manure. Just enough to keep drawing us back or further in, promising, promising. This time it'll be satisfying. This time you won't be confused any longer. If you just go a bit further in or just come again, this time you'll get control and freedom in your life. If you just keep chasing this false teaching ideology, then you'll finally find it. And we get a little bit of satisfaction each time. But it keeps falling short. Uh, now I want us to look at typical aspects of uh, false teaching and false teachers. Uh, let's keep in mind, though, uh, the, the way to spot a counterfeit bill, uh, you've probably heard this example or analogy, is to study the real deal, right? To uh, study the authentic 20, and then you'll be able to spot the inauthentic one, right? And I would say uh, the best way to spot anything counterfeit is not to read more books about uh, that ideology, but is to read the book about what God might say about that ideology or this way of life. Uh, to get more into the gospel, more into the scriptures, and then uh, doubt our doubts, right? And, and look into what is true, what is authentic, and then also read good books on both sides and kind of uh, figure out what is true. So here are some different typical aspects of false teaching. Uh, the first is this, uh, self-deification. This is the master principle, right, that we talked about earlier. Uh, I'm we're or they're right and, and true, and I'll follow everything that I or, or we or they uh, say is true. So, uh, you know, this will come out with I. Uh, an example would be, I feel like this will bring happiness in my life or this will lead to life. I have deemed what is true for me. And if, as long as it doesn't hurt you, that, that's fine, right? Or, or, or I think this is the right way to go. I've, I've studied, I've thought, I've talked to others, and I've decided, even though uh, God says something different, that this is the right way to go. Or I've experienced this or that, and from my experience, I, I know what is right, good, and true. I am the author of truth. I, I self-deification, I, I am God. Or we, right? This is how we do it here in America. We say, uh, we have deemed this is good, right, and true, and therefore uh, we will follow what is good, right, and true. The majority votes or agrees and decides this is what is moral, this is what is right, this is what is good. Or they, they the elites, they've studied, they know, and they can tell us what to do, we trust them. Self-deification, it's kind of a postmodern tolerance uh, way of going. The, the problem is kind of uh, the, the bottom falls out uh, because uh, there, there's no foundation for what is good, right, and true. Uh, uh, might makes right. I can overpower you with this or that, and, and therefore I am right. And we've seen the masses have gone uh, terribly wrong in things like uh, the Holocaust and in slavery. And we say, um, certainly that's not right. That's not good. There's no foundation to this way of living. There's no common truth. We see a lot of uh, this kind of thinking within the sexual revolution, this, this massive turn of events that's occurred uh, predominantly in the last 15 years. Massive. Uh, the next kind of false uh, teaching way to go about things here or uh, typical aspects is this gospel plus, gospel plus. Gospel plus uh, says uh, you need some additional work <laughs> to add to who Jesus is and what he's done. 
Now that can be explicit, an explicit addition, like uh, maybe you've been in a church where they've said, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. If you're not baptized in this church, you're not saved. So uh, you need Jesus, yeah, but you need to be baptized too. It's just anti-gospel. It's false teaching. Uh, It can be as explicit as that. Or if you you didn't speak in tongues, then you haven't had that second baptism. And you need that to be saved or these kinds of explicit additions. Uh, Then sometimes there's this implicit guilt, right? Whether you're Catholic or you're Baptist, right? Uh, You got to do more. If you've not done enough, uh, you have not made it. You're not saved. You're not good enough to stand before God or before us. You should be ashamed of yourself. Don't even think about taking communion till your sins are absolved. When the whole point of the gospel, right, is you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. We, we can't add to the work that is fully and complete in Christ. Everything he has done is sufficient in his life, death, and resurrection. Gospel plus. The next one is false promises. Uh, often within uh, false teaching, an aspect you'll see is a false promise, an alternate salvation. So like the prosperity gospel is an example of this. You will get health and wealth if you believe and follow this. You'll get it there through health and wealth, what you're looking for in salvation. Or maybe you heard it within the evangelical church a bit more nuanced, which is you'll have all the peace you need. You'll have all the life. You'll have your good life now. And then Peter gets hung upside down on a cross. And all of Jesus' followers... Are stoned to death, are cast out, are destroyed for their faith. While they did have deeper and greater life in Christ, but it wasn't their best life now. False promises. Uh, the next one is we distort critical doctrines or definitions. A liberation theology is this one, uh, this idea that the, 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 the main sin or problem is oppression and therefore uh, to find salvation is to be released from it. And that is salvation here, physical, now liberation theology. We see kind of inklings of that within uh, the critical race uh, uh, teachings. And so, uh, you know, it does a great job of both, kind of do a great job of evaluating the problems. Saying, man, we got some deep problems within racism. Deep problems. But then the solutions or, or the definitions of what is salvation is, is changed in a sort of way. And, and what is sin and the problem is, is tweaked or altered in a sort of way. Uh, that it's not uh, all of us together. Massive problems. And man, do we have them. See, the, the gospel frees uh, the white church or white Christianity to say, oh my gosh, we have done a terrible job in our history. Some disgusting things of propagating racism and slavery and, and then continuing it into the 60s. Uh, uh, white Christians, right? It allows us to say that, but then with the right definitions of what is sin, what's the solution in Christ altogether? A distortion of critical doctrines or definitions. We see this within uh, oneness Pentecostalism. You probably don't know that term, but the idea is that uh, we change the definition of God, who's a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, into just Jesus, who kind of shows up at different times in different ways. And therefore, uh, we're not appeasing the wrath of the Father through the death of the Son, then being applied by the Spirit. And, And where does salvation go? We see this within political or social movements like QAnon and others. Uh, uh, the problem is, man, the devil is pulling the strings of the liberal and, and we've got to get this uh, conservative group that's going to bring salvation. We say, disgusting. 
a distortion of critical doctrines or definitions, changing particularly uh, the doctrines of sin and salvation and God. And then lastly, a distortion of the relationship between salvation and sanctification. And the relationship between salvation and sanctification, they're inseparable but very distinct. Uh, so maybe you've heard someone say, just preach the gospel. Right? And so you got the salvation piece, but then it's severed from sanctification or the transformation of our lives and the restoration of God's creation. And we say, yeah, just this, just this is a check the box kind of salvation. Uh, but then uh, such a blind eye to the way that we live that we say, uh, man, is this any longer the gospel? Because the gospel would certainly result in life transformation. Or you can go the other way around, like reversing sanctification to come before salvation. Which is to say, you got to clean yourself up in lordship before you come and are saved. A distortion of salvation and sanctification. Uh, like I said, there's way more to be said about each one of these. And there's a whole bunch of nuance for each one of the false teachings and true teachings associated with all of them. Uh, I found a really helpful book in her writings, Rebecca McLaughlin. She's just a top shelf a theologian, apologist, but uh, what's amazing about her is the way that she uh, brings love to the conversation and relationship to the conversation. So the Secular Creeds, this tiny little book, I'd recommend it. it it's, you know, you've probably seen these uh, uh, signs in, in either your yard or others' yards, and, and you've, you know, they, they kind of make you want to grab a hammer, some of us to hammer them into our yards, and then uh, some of us to destroy them, right? And so she, she really uh, attacks both these to say, hey, what is true teaching and how do we interact? Uh, with all these different ideologies. I want to just close this here. How do we then love people who believe differently than us and still keep the gospel pure? I want to give us uh, this paradigm in which to think, and I think it's critical. It's this kind of inside the church, outside the church paradigm. Uh, that inside the church we would have this kind of Acts 19 paradigm. And, and here's what happens in Acts 19. I, 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 I had planned to go there. We're not going to read through it. There's not enough time. But in, in Acts 19, uh, Paul is in Ephesus. And, and there's uh, all these uh, guys and gals, and they're just worshiping idols. They've got this silversmith who's just pumping out silver idols, just making a killing. And, and, and what the church, as they come to know Jesus, what, what occurs there is they all just stop worshiping idols. They just say, no, this is what's true about Jesus our Savior. They, they don't gotta, gotta try and legislate it or push power or, or condemn the world. They're not kind of slinging mud or bombs at others. They just say, we're the church. Here's what we believe. We don't want to live for idols. So they stop buying idols. They start living so differently and distinctly as a church community or as a Christian family uh, that it, 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 it kind of uh, not just shines a bright light about who Jesus is, but it brings about this radical transformation in the city. The idol sellers, they get pissed. They say, man, we are losing a ton of cash because everybody keeps following Jesus and not worshiping idols anymore. 
So within the church, inside the church, they just decided, we just decide. We're going to live by what is true. We're going to follow Jesus, our Savior. We trust him. We know what's true. We want uh, the divorce rate within the church to be drastically different than outside the church. We want marriage to look drastically different. We want the way that we care for the outside or the neglected or the overlooked to be drastically different here inside of the church. And then it brings this restoration and transformation in their sphere of influence. Uh, and then this, there's this other paradigm when we think of those outside of the church. Now we find this in Jesus' life. In, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 and following, just a few verses there. Jesus, I love the text, it says he reclines at the table with sinners and tax collectors. He just hangs out, knows them, loves them. He's not condemning them or slinging mud at them. He's loving them that they would be introduced, get to know him. And we read the story and we're like, man, yeah, we're going to be just like Jesus. But the story's about us. We're the sinners. We're the tax collectors. We're the one uh, covered in vile mire and sin. And he says, I'm going to come close to you, even you, Matt. And it humbles us. It gives us this deep love for Jesus and for others, other sinners and tax collectors like us. Uh, then that changes our paradigm from uh, not pushing the morality of Jesus on others who have not given their allegiance to Jesus, right? They're not under his umbrella of allegiance. Uh, but, but instead, we say, I want you to meet my Savior, Jesus, who, who's transformed the whole way I live. In my money, in my sexuality, in my relationship with those who are overlooked, in every aspect of it. Let's see, we don't push the morality or legislate or power play the morality in. We love people and we introduce them to our Savior who's changed our lives. Now, Peter summarizes it like this in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, in our hearts, honor or set apart Christ as Lord, right? Let's, as a family, let's, as a church, say, we're going to live for Jesus. For what's true, we're going to keep it pure and true. We're even going to argue about what is true, what the scriptures say, what the gospel says is true. And we're going to live that out. Dang nabbit. <laughs> And that's going to bring about transformation in our spheres of influence. But, but at the same time, we're not going to push our morality, legislate, power play our morality, or, or slam judgments and condemnation on you. We're going to say, hey, would you meet my Savior? He rescued a fool like me. This is the paradigm in which we live. And when people ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have, we do this with gentleness and respect. Why? Because this is the very way our Savior lived towards us. Grace and truth. He did not come running at us with a sword to condemn us. He came full of grace for us. We were thinking and running in the wrong direction. We were even propagating wrongness with our lives. And he said, I want that one. <laughs> and in grace, he lived this perfect life in our place. And he said, yeah, by faith you can have this perfection as your very own. And by grace, he climbed up on a tree. His body was broken and his blood was spilled. He said, by faith you can trust in this, this substitution, this sacrifice. My Jesus' death is on your behalf. And then by faith we can uh, receive his resurrection too, to newness of life. To trust him. To follow him with every aspect of our life. To live differently as a family. To live differently as a church. And to introduce people to our Savior, whose body was broken, whose blood was spilled for them, for us.
that he might transform their lives too. That he might transform their lives too. That's not my job. <laughs> that he might transform their lives too. So if you're trusting in Christ this morning, would you know that the warnings of this passage, they're not for you? That you come to the deep well of Jesus and you are satisfied this morning. That you come stable and sturdy, not blown about like a mist, but you come in Christ. That, that you come not enslaved to your own sinfulness, but, but enslaved to your master Jesus who is loving and gracious and kind and merciful and gives life itself. Would you come and remember who your Savior is and what he's done? And if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, would you cling to him? The promise is for you too, if by faith you would trust in him. Let's take and eat together. Remember who our Savior is and what he's done. Let's take and eat.